on this episode of Imagine a World. In one sense, we have too many perspectives because the whole internet is is like seething with, <laughs> yeah. with voices, and we can't we can't organize or comprehend any of it. Um, and on the other hand, it seems to be the same kinds of narratives that are surfaced again and again. And I think, in particular, when it comes to AI, the same apocalyptic scenarios are raised again and again, and that's potentially problematic when it comes to the large language models that are trained on existing discourse, right? Like it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> where the stories that we tell about AI are apocalyptic. Yeah. We train our, our AI on the apocalyptic narratives about Jinx. themselves. The AI <laughs> is faced with a decision about what to do and it chooses the most likely scenario as the apocalyptic <laughs> scenario. Um, so I think we have a real responsibility to be more imaginative um, in terms of, yeah, like, let's let's be smart. Let's let's do our pre-mortem. Um, <laughs> but let's also have the faith and the courage to imagine different kinds of stories and to tell them. Yeah. Welcome to Imagine a World, a mini series from the Future of Life Institute. This podcast is based on a contest we ran to gather ideas from around the world about what a more positive future might look like in 2045. We hope the diverse ideas you're about to hear will spark discussions and maybe even collaborations. But you should know that the ideas in this podcast are not to be taken as FLI endorsed positions. And now over to our host, Guillaume Reason. Welcome to the Imagine a World podcast by the Future of Life Institute. I'm your host, Guillaume Reason. In this episode, we'll be exploring a world called AI for the People, which was a third place winner of FLI's world building contest. The name AI for the People does a great job of capturing this team's activist perspective and their commitment to empowerment. They imagine social and political shifts that bring power back into the hands of individuals, whether that's serving as lawmakers on randomly selected committees or gaining income by choosing to sell personal data online. But this world isn't just about human people. Its biggest bombshell is an AI breakthrough that allows humans to communicate with other animals. As a result, we see a major shift in our relationship with the natural world and each other. This team has created an intimate, complex portrait of a world being shared by multiple parties. AIs, humans, other animals, and the environment itself. As these entities find their way forward together, their goals become enmeshed and their boundaries increasingly blurred. Our guest today is Key Rayner Bornfree, one member of the three-person team who created this world. Key has a doctorate in rhetoric and taught at several universities before shifting their focus to writing. They also have a lifelong passion for activism, shared by their partner Michael White. Micah has a doctorate in media and communications and co-founded the Occupy Wall Street movement. Their third teammate, J.R. Harris, is a freelance illustrator who created the beautiful webcomic accompanying their submission. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Key. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was curious, your team has three people. Um, how did you come together to work on this? Well, Micah White and I are married, and we are longtime creative collaborators hmm. um, on activist campaigns, on creative campaigns. He tends to be more analytical and technical, and I tend to be, in this, in this project, I was more of the creative lead. Um, and JR is our, our go-to guy for our visuals, and we love his aesthetic style. We knew we wanted to do a comic to get the main ideas across. Um, so we were really happy that he had space and time to work with us on it. So did you and Micah kind of discover the competition and bring JR in, it sounds like? 
Yeah, I was. Uh, so I'm a writer, and I became fascinated and terrified at the potential of AI to write. And so I was researching the the novels that have been co-written with AI and trying to write uh-huh. a philosophy article about what this means that AI is learning to write. And I quickly realized that the the issues that involved in artificial writing branch out into everything from our souls to our politics. And it became a much bigger fascination for me than just being concerned about the competition to my chosen career. And so, yeah, I came, I was researching AI in general and, and came across the um, Max Tegmark's book and came across the competition. And I was like, Mike, I want to do this, but I don't feel like I have the, the expertise. <laughs> um, and he really helped encourage me to go for it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad you guys entered. I mean, what a world you've come up with. Thank you. What were some of your biggest sources of inspiration? You mentioned Max Tegmark's book. Were there other sort of fictional or real things that were floating around? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I mentioned I was reading some of the novels that were written by or with AI, um, the first one being One the Road, um, another one being Pharmaco AI. Um, But I think what had the biggest impact on me was um, Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction climate change novel, Ministry for the Future, Mm. which had just come out. And which really lit me up in a new way um, because of it, it did that same kind of holistic thinking about the problem of climate change, thinking about it from all these directions at all these levels and made me see new possibilities there for activism that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the backdrop, I think, of, uh, and I, I stole, I stole a bunch of ideas from his book. Um, <laughs> you were inspired. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, at the same time, just a small article came out about some researchers who had used AI to decode and communicate with pigs. And at, at some level, it was, you know, the research seemed uh, obvious, like, do we really need AI to tell us that this is a squeal of distress? But, but on the same time, it was one of those research findings that opens up a whole new level of, uh, well, wow, what could be possible, right? So it's it's what it stands for as a step in a direction of um, accessing new modes of understanding, new modes of being. Um, that was really exciting to me, and that became one of the the very first creative insights that and that gave me the energy to pursue the project. Yeah. I actually haven't heard of these AI novels. I, I only heard of like this engineer who kind of made a children's book with, I think, Dolly and AI combined or something. But these are like full on, like multiple hundred page novels. Is that what's going on? Maybe, maybe novels isn't exactly the best word. Um, I haven't heard of that children's book one. So it's, it's interesting. The field. Yeah, that was kind of a splash <laughs> for like, you know, a lot of artists who work on kids' books were very upset about that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'll have to look that one up. Yeah, one the road, um, an engineer attached a camera to an old car and an AI system and, and drove around um, uh, or, or made a road trip from New York down to, I want to say, Florida. Um, and so in the, in the tra- American tradition of the great road trip novel, they had the AI kind of spit out data captions based on what it was seeing, based on the the geolocation data, things like that. And what came out was, you know, partly, so this is an early one. Um, it's somewhat gibberish, but also somewhat poetic. Um, and then there are later ones that are more interactive. Um, Pharmaco AI is a collaboration between GPT-3 and K. Alado McDowell, and it's a mystical exploration of different, um, where it really feels like 
it's not a fictional work, but it takes you on a journey in, in, the, in a way that a good fictional book does. Um, so I was just really fascinated about getting into the voice and the language of a uh, that in some way is drawn from the entire library of yeah, yeah. human creation and in other ways is its own distinct thing. Yeah, that's fascinating. i got to check those out. I'm also curious about how your kind of personal perspectives and your background, I know that, um, you know, you mentioned you and your, your husband do this kind of activism stuff. Micah like co-started Occupy Wall Street. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He was working at Adbusters in the early days and put out the, the first tactical briefing calling for people to occupy, occupy Wall Street. And he and I were both at all the, the early meetings and helping to facilitate the general assemblies. And we were in Berkeley at the time. Uh, there were a bunch of occupies there. So yeah, and we have a long history of doing activism together. One of our our first campaigns was when I got back from doing nonviolent direct action work in Palestine. We started putting together a lot of resources around combating activist burnout, and we called it Long Term hmm. Vision. And that's that's not even on the internet anymore. But I rem- <laughs> I, I think it was I, I referenced it because it was an early it's an early commitment that we've come to share. Right, like it's important to develop a long term vision so that you can direct your energies and and use them appropriately without burning yeah. out. And so how how did that kind of perspective influence your thinking about the future and this process of like creating a possible future world? Yeah, we called our world AI for the people because I think one of our major concerns is that this technology is so expensive that it's mainly being influenced and developed by corporations whose primary directive is to make money. They have to. It's mm-hmm. their it's their um their reason for being and they're responsible to their stakeholders for for doing that um so if if ai is in the service of simply making money we're missing out on a huge potential for this technology so one of the what if questions governing our world was well what would activists do if they were involved with ai what could artists do what kinds of other potentials could we see and actualize if ai was a technology that was for the people, by the people, and really has that drive towards making life not perfect, but better and good enough for the majority, not just about enriching people who already have enough. This submission has a strong focus on relationships. The world does change around humanity, But the deepest changes are really happening in our relationships to it, and to the other entities that it contains. I wanted to understand what it might be like to live as a human in this more interconnected world, where we're no longer being held apart as the main characters. So I'd like to take a little bit of time to kind of set the scene of what your world that you've drawn out is like. And this is kind of a hard question, but I'm curious where you'll go with it. How do people find fulfillment in your world? Or like, what is a good life like? Mm, I love that question. I mean, there's as many good lives as there are people. But I think we can develop some broad strokes. One is that many people find fulfillment through political engagement. They're in the US and the UK in our world. We have imagined a sortition revolution. Um, And this is a theory that's gaining more and more popularity, that democracy, that true democracy is democracy by lot. What that means for the everyday person is a lot more people are going to have to be a lot more involved in 
how things get done. And we thought that might actually work out pretty well if AI comes to take over certain jobs that are now filled by humans, then people may end up with more leisure time. Um, and so it's a question in the literature, you know, what, what will people do when, when robots and AI take over their jobs? And one of our answers was, well, political participation. That said, I think that's not for everyone. <laughs> not everyone is interested in spending their time that way and working out those kinds of problems, doing that kind of learning. Um, another feature of the good life in our world is that I think there's a strong cultural shift in our world towards an emphasis on the interrelationship with nature and the environment. Mm. Um, in our world, ultimately, climate change is solved. And along the way, many people become vegetarian, many people become enlaced, which means they have AI implanted into their heads, and that allows them to communicate with animals, mushrooms, maybe even maybe even the wind, who knows? <laughs> um, and so that kind of, that opens up, I think, another aspect for a good life, for a beautiful life, which isn't just what you do with your time, but really being human, really being. Um, so a part of a good life is being and learning to be. The last feature that I would say that's an important aspect of the good life in our world is that there's uh, time and possibility for creative endeavors. Um, effectively, there's a UBI, a universal basic income. And so that's one structural reality that allows many people to pursue artistic passions or, or hobbies just for the fun of it. Uh, you don't have to be Virginia Woolf to, to bother writing a novel. But also, I think I imagine that as the world becomes increasingly technologically sophisticated, there at the same time might be a growing appreciation for the aesthetic of handcraftedness. Um, just because humanity appreciates diversity, we appreciate contrasts, those are part of what give us pleasure. So as we get really beautiful and powerful and, and um, capable technologies in our everyday lives, there also might come to be a real appreciation and fascination with handcrafted objects that were took time to make that have the flaws that weren't just stamped out on mm. on a machine um, and there would be the the capacity for people to spend time making those objects because of the universal basic income because of perhaps some freedom from work uh, enabled by artificial intelligence yeah i mean there's there's already a, a ton there that you've covered <laughs> um I think we'll dive into the mechanics of how sortition works and the inspiration of that and some of the content about universal basic income a bit later. But in this moment, I want to think a little bit more about this environmental relational change. And specifically in your world, something that really stuck with me is this Lorax AI system that basically allows you to communicate with different forms of life and, and maybe other phenomena in the world, as you're suggesting. Can you say a little bit more about like what that actually looks like? Like, how would you communicate with your dog or something? Mm. I think it would be like an application in your head. If you're enlaced with an AI in your brain, uh, let's say you would activate the application by blinking or something like that. You hear your your dog bark and you blink to select translation mode, um, and then you hear the rendering into English or your chosen language of what your dog is saying. And and look, like communication between humans is not perfect, right? <laughs> or, or even between two native speakers of the same language, very much not perfect. So let's not imagine that cross-species communication wouldn't have its issues and its flaws. 
perhaps the vocabulary might be very limited. But I think some linguistic communication could certainly be achieved. The big question for me is, would we be able to speak back? Would there be a technological innovation that would allow us to also speak back in dog or in cat or bee or or dolphin or whatever the case may be? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. So I'm a big animal person. I have two little dogs who I love dearly. And I got them little buttons so they can press and, you know, like say outside or play play or whatever. I've also been trying to do the other end of the operation, which is like learning their language. So sometimes I'll like snoof Mm. or like, you know, do certain body movements that indicate play or whatever. And it seems to kind of work. Like, I feel like there's, there's a lot of potential there for us to learn the languages of animals as well. Oh, that's amazing. Have, have, do you think it's changed your relationship, especially your move to try to learn their language? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's a sense of sort of embodying, like when we're playing and I, I kind of naturally now I'll do like this fake sneeze, which dogs do to let other dogs know that they're kind of like just kidding and it's not like real aggression. And huh. I feel like it, it kind of comes naturally to me now. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, there's some aspect of like embodying their experience of the world in a very small way. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know about that fake sneeze. I'm a new, a new puppy owner. I'll have to. Yeah, you'll probably see it. It's really cute. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Now, now that you say it, I think I've heard it. I'll keep my eyes out. Yeah. Well, so this, this whole ability to somehow understand or, or more intimately relate with animals really decenters humanity in your world. You actually call it a Copernican moment where we kind of realize we're not the center of the intelligent universe. And this, this leads to a really deep sea change in how we relate to the environment and other forms of life. You have this really cool symbolism in your work um, in the comic that's like a rotting apple core. And this represents how humanity has been consuming Earth's resources kind of from Eve's first bite onward. And you talk about this kind of shifting until we grow into knowledge that enhances rather than extracts. Can you say a little bit more about like what kind of knowledge you're imagining that could look like and how that would change our relationship with nature? I, yeah, I think the fundamental shift is, is one in which nature changes from being either the backdrop that we ignore or the view that we're seeking out to post it on Instagram into being uh, something more interactive, something more deeply interrelational. I imagine that we would develop a more intimate relationship with nature that doesn't depend on transactions and extractions where it becomes a little bit in the way that you're talking about embodying your dog, that it becomes a, a kind of embodied knowledge where we're more attuned to what the natural world feels like and reading those languages, speaking that nature has a language that we have forgotten how to speak. Um, like the mm. when you walk in the forest, it has the the ground has a certain topography. If the uh, trees have been allowed to fall and decay and lie undisturbed. Um, and if you are experienced, which I'm not really, um, you can you can walk through and, and see, oh, there may have been a fire here or this mm-hmm. may have happened. And and the topography is encoding a history. It's speaking a language to us um, that we've forgotten how to to read and to hear. So I imagine that some of those those skills and um, understandings would come back and that we would know them in our minds, but also know them in our bodies. Yeah. This world features a range of systems that help to spread power and promote equity. There's a kind of radical democracy in the US, a new social media platform that promotes empathy and provides a form of universal basic income, and of course tools that enable communication between humans and other animals. 
I asked Key what some of these systems would actually look like, and how they might imagine them playing out in their world. One of the biggest changes uh, that we talked about earlier in governance is this idea of sortition. So I had to look this up. My understanding is it's basically based on random selection. So you randomly have like a lottery and then people are put on a panel. They're given the best information they can get by maybe an AI system in your world and they make the decisions. Is that kind of the right idea? Yeah, absolutely. And it's most familiar to us because we already use it in the American jury system. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Interesting. So that's where we that's where we know democracy by lot, but in in ancient Athens where we've gathered many of our, our ideas about democracy, it was um that's the only way that democracy uh took place. Um they would consider representative democracy like we have to be oligarchical. Yeah. And the the arguments in in favor of sortition are really so many from the get-go you see that at once that it's a much more representative Mm -hmm. Uh, population governing, Um, not just the sorts of identity categories that are really common now. Oh, you would have a more equal distribution of people of color and women and trans people or whatever, but also cognitive diversity, right? So the sorts of people who might not necessarily seek out group work or political work would be more likely to be represented in a political system governed by sortition. And that's, that's been shown to be really effective and important for better decision-making. It's a really exciting potential that seems like like it really holds the key to a lot of the, the political problems that seem intractable right now. The connection to ancient Athens does make me think. I, I think I remember that they only allowed certain people to be sorted, like probably men who owned land or something like that. And obviously, we would try to be more inclusive today. But in your world, we have this recognition of other life forms as, you know, having relevant intelligences and being sentient. So where would you draw that line in choosing people or beings to include? Like, would you consider including other animals in the sortition process? Wow, I hadn't thought of that. And I love that question. I don't know. I think that there there is a campaign uh, that is successful in our world to count animals and, and other beings as legal persons, which mm-hmm. gives them legal rights, which allows us to pass legislation that protects habitats and things like that. Um, yeah. There have been lawsuits like that already, although they haven't yet so far succeeded. And yeah, I think if we had the technology and it was deemed legitimate, uh, it would be much better for chimpanzees to be able to speak for themselves than than for us to speak for them in terms of of claiming what their personhood would be. At the same time, I think there's there's clearly value in in understanding um, that humans have particular ways of being together, and mm. um, maybe I'm just being maybe I'm being kind of reactionarily anthropocentric still yeah, here. But, yeah. um, I think it, <laughs> I would imagine that we would call on animals to give testimony um, and and try to account for their personhood and their claims while retaining the category of a evolving human being as one that collaborates and co-legislates and 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 co-creates its civilization and its political uh, operations distinct from other species of persons. Yeah. Another source of inspiration you mentioned for sortition was like indigenous American governance models. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what those look like and how those relate. Yeah. There's a lot of variety to my understanding. Um because of the the wide variety of different indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but to take one example that I know a, a tiny bit about, um, the Haudenosaunee, who also better known as the Iroquois, 
had a, a principle of governance that was based on participatory consensus-based democracy. And you see in their ethics um, some principles that I think are really important for making sortition work. Um, one of them is active listening, um, understanding that consensus isn't going to be perfect, but that a broad agreement can really be arrived at. And they also are known for their ethic of thinking about the seven generations. And this is obviously not intrinsic to a sortition-based um, system, but I think it's a really important indigenous principle to to carry forward is, is that kind of long-term vision, that kind of long-term thinking about mm. not just how will my actions, the decisions that we make today together by consensus impact those of us who are here now, but to try to bring into our agreement, into our decision-making process, the needs and the rights and the considerations of seven generations past us and beyond us. And you can really see where bringing the unborn people and animals and, and you know, just the very earth itself into the calculation would change the kinds of decisions that are made. Yeah. So one of my concerns when thinking about sortition, again, I've just started thinking about this as a broader idea, but, you know, our society is so specialized and like, if if we're trying to figure out something that has to do with some niche economic concept that like most people haven't had a chance to even think about, but there are some people who we'd consider experts who have thought about it a lot. Like, wouldn't you want them to be the ones weighing in? Like, how do you balance that notion of expertise with um, representation? That is the most ancient critique of tradition <laughs> that there is, and and we can thank Plato for leaving us with that really thorny and difficult problem. Yes, you wouldn't want, you know, his version of it is you wouldn't have just anyone build the ships for the army. Um, you you want the shipbuilder to build the ships mm. for the army. I think the strongest answer to that lies in two things. One, that political knowledge is a different kind of knowledge from other sorts of expertise, mm. um, where our expertise about how there, there really might be at any given time, like one best way to build a computer or a ship. Um, and in that case, you want the expert to to tell you what is that best way and to learn from them and, and and even improve on them. But when it comes to political knowledge, at any given time, there isn't one best kind of of political knowledge or one expertise in political knowledge. It's not it's not a knowledge that yields to expertise in that same way. Or even if you'd want to take something like like economics and and in your example, there's a lot of debate around yeah. economic questions. And so when you're dealing with questions that are inherently more ambiguous, the best case scenario for arriving at a workable answer is one that brings lots of perspectives. And that brings me to the second part of my answer, which is that people learn by doing. So political knowledge is the kind of knowledge that people learn about by engaging in it rather than by reading Plato's Republic. Um, <laughs> you, you have to learn, oh, when, this, when there's this kind of conflict, you know, here's something that can diffuse it. And, and here's the kind of person that I am when a, when a conflict comes up. Um, and here's the kind of role that I can play that I'm comfortable playing when a conflict comes up. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of knowledge that actually really benefits from having a diverse range of voices in the room. I think that there's, there needs to be a opportunity for learning and gathering of evidence, just like our Senate already does, right? They bring yeah. experts to testify in front of them. They also, we trust them to educate themselves adequately on a given on a given subject when it comes before them. And the same thing would be true in a sortition-based system. There would be a, let's say, a, a sequence or a process for educating before decision-making. 
And I could see how AI systems would be very helpful in that too, like selecting the right information to help people or kind of facilitating the learning process. Right. Yeah. Although with they would have to be maybe a little bit more uh, less prone to hallucination and <laughs> yeah. making up of facts than the, the current iterations yeah. are. So another factor you mentioned is this universal basic income, and it comes about in a really interesting way in your world. Um, it starts with a social network called Our Time, which is basically initially released by this group of hackers who are anonymous, and they kind of took apart the algorithms for major social media platforms and then put them back together in a way that they hoped would encourage empathy and you know focus on that rather than engagement for its own sake. And this became very popular, and people all start using Our Time. And then there's this option where you can sell your data on our time. And that basically comes out to be the universal basic income option. Can you say a little bit more about like what that looks like? Like what does it mean to give away your data and like what kind of people would choose to do that or what kind of pressure would there be to or not to? Oh, well, we're all giving away our data all the time. Every time we sign up for what this is apparently a free site or a free, you know, accept those cookies and give yeah, away my information. Yeah. We're, we're, we're the, the, I think uh, one term that's sometimes used is data sovereignty. Um, we, we currently don't have any control over our digital traces that we're leaving on the internet all the time. Um, and they're incredibly useful, not just primarily for, for advertisers and people who want to make money off of us, but they're also useful for medical researchers, mm. psychology researchers. Um, I think as knowledge production becomes an increasingly important cornerstone of the economy that's partially founded on artificial intelligence, data is only going to become more valuable. And so this aspect of our world, which was inspired by something in Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, mm. um, just makes something visible that we currently take for granted. It's a neat solution because it solves two problems at once, right? It solves the problem of how do we take back control of our data? And it solves the problem of, well, how do we support ourselves um, in a world where AI is doing a lot of the jobs? What are, yeah. we, what are we contributing that's valuable in a world where AI is doing a lot of the jobs? Well, our data is still really valuable. Interesting. I'm also curious what our time looks like. Like, can you imagine any aspects of what the experience would be like of using it in in this sort of empathy centered way? The one aspect that I think would that comes to mind is, I think it would be a different temporal experience. I think right now the one of the things that's kind of deadening about social media um, and that leads us to ever more extreme positions and experiences on there is that it can happen very quickly, right? You can scroll from one thing to the next until you, um, it's kind of infinite, infinite stimulation. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what would happen if we set out to create a social media that um, induced a different experience of time, one that encouraged us to spend a little, spend a little more time um, with, what you're, with what you're coming across and what mm. you're experiencing. And I think that might be the first, rather than in building in these kind of, micro quick reactions counterintuitively maybe spending more time together uh, leads to a different kind of social media experience. That's really interesting. Yeah. One issue that was in my mind when I was reading about our time in terms of like profitability to take a really cynical view of it is like, if you're really prioritizing empathy like that, like say you slow people down, you have them really engage with a post. Doesn't that necessarily mean that it would be you know, kind of less engaging or like, wouldn't you lose some viewership? Like, how do you, how do you get people onto this platform 
And if you can, without being, without following the traditional models, what would keep other companies with worse uh, intents from copying you? Well, I think part of the incentive for joining is it's your, I imagine that it's your data on our time that you can sell. Um, so it's your, what you look at on there um, that, that then accrues to you um, as as information that you can store and sell and it and maybe it's it's a, maybe it's a platform like Google that tracks you across different mm. sorts of search and, and mail and different kinds of things and yeah there might be competitors and and yeah it might not be perfect and yeah some people might still choose to use other kinds of platforms but if there's a um, right now the idea is we get these products Gmail or Facebook for free and we give them our data. I think instead, if you're incentivized to use the platform because you get your data back and you get this potential for earning money from your data back, that that sh- that shifts the paradigm in a fundamental way. How does the company make money? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> it's some. It's based on the blockchain. <laughs> it's crypto, so they can just magically. I don't know. There's an oh, yeah, NFT absolutely. and a meme, and um, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how the profitability side of it would work, but yeah. I know that. Yeah. No one does. <laughs> yeah. And yet it works, Especially kind of. With crypto, right? Yeah. There's yeah. a proof of proof of work. <laughs> proof funny. of stake. Well, speaking of crypto, um, one other factor in your world that's related to this kind of relationship with the environment is a carbon backed currency called Klima, K L I M A. And Klima. Klima. Oh, I think it's known as Klima. Yeah. I believe you. <laughs> uh, Klima, K L I M A. And I looked it up and this is a real cryptocurrency right now. People are like trying to make into a thing. Can you say a little bit about like the real world version and how it works in your imaginary world? Yeah, Micah is the real expert on Klima. Uh, we are we are investors in Klima. Um, and despite my sort of youthful skepticism about carbon as a, as a way of limiting climate change, it seems like my older self sees this as a actionable way of working on the system that currently exists mm-hmm. to change the system that currently exists. Um, and it's also, it's an aspect in um, an important aspect in Kim Stanley Robinson's ministry for the future as well. Yeah. So FLI doesn't endorse any particular cryptocurrency. Of course, neither you nor FLI are giving financial advice here, but tell us a little more about why you find Klima so interesting. What makes it interesting as a crypto project is that it's a crypto coin that's backed by a real world asset. Um, which is the carbon that is sequestered rather than being released. The idea is that by basing a currency on carbon, we will drive up the price of carbon, making it, and there's already in place through various climate agreements, um, companies have to pay for the carbon that they emit. But the price of carbon is so cheap that that it's not an effective deterrent or an effective incentive to finding cleaner ways to fly for example. Um, so the idea is that it would work in a twofold way. In Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, um, people who are sequestering carbon in the ground, perhaps by um, using organic farming techniques, could be rewarded for that. Or if Saudi Arabia decided not to extract any more of its oil, um, then they could be paid for that. Their, their oil might actually be more valuable in the ground because they could be paid in this carbon token in this carbon currency. Hmm. Um, so it, it both incentivizes climate positive actions and disincentivizes climate negative options. I find cryptocurrency in general 
confusing as I'm sure a lot of people do. <laughs> but yeah. so I, I'm st- I still kind of have a fuzzy picture in my head of how this works. So you have this coin, which is connected to real world carbon emissions, like say one clima is like a cubic meter of carbon or something. I don't know. Is that the kind of equivalence that you're imagining? Yeah. And then like, so who, who controls I just don't really understand how it's connected to it, I guess. Yeah. In Ministry for the Future, it's run by a central bank okay. um, and a, co- a coalition of the big banks, um, the European bank, the US bank, and, and China's bank come together to sponsor. A, the coin is called Carboni, and they put <laughs> a, a floor on it um, and make sure that it can't be um, shorted. Um, and they put various other kinds of financial regulations in place. And the, there's basically like a regulatory body that um, confirms, and, and this infrastructure is already in place because there is already a carbon market where people are buying and trading carbon. Interesting. Um, so this financial infrastructure is already there to vet that, okay, this amount of carbon has been sequestered in the yeah. Brazilian rainforest. Um, so those, those institutions are there. Yeah. So like you're a farmer, say, and you find a way to use organic farming and you can prove that you're going to get like a hundred of these cubic meters or something. That sounds like a lot, but <laughs> you, can, you can get a mm-hmm. bunch of this carbon sequestered. And then this like bank gives you the Klima coins. Is that kind mm-hmm. of it? Y- yeah. You're kind of blending the ideas from my world, yeah, yeah, sorry. Robinson's <laughs> world which, which is also what I did. But yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good picture. Blending the two worlds is, gives us a good picture of how it might come to be. I see. Well, I, I'm really excited to talk more about the animal and other creature communication concept. Can you say a little bit more about how that came about in your world and like how it developed? I think part of it comes out of first testing the the implants on other species, as our lo- mm. our laws currently allow us to do. Yeah, um, and then seeing that that actually opens up the possibility for for communicating with with first chimpanzees, and then I think other primates and and other mammals would probably be first to learn. Um, But the general sort of interdependence that I am imagining between the the AI, the human, and the animal, um, I I don't agree with Elon Musk about many things. But one thing that I think (laughs) that he is right about is that the best way to align the interests of AI and humanity is to have AI embedded into a um, organic body. The obvious positive impact, right, is a benefit to humanity in terms of our capabilities, but at the same time, giving AI a vested stake in the continuance Mm. and the maintenance of um, human forms, human civilization, and the earth itself, right? Like why, why would AI care about climate change AI could probably withstand a much greater temperature increase yeah. than humans can, for example. Like we're a pretty finely tuned organism. We can only exist within a certain, a pretty small temperature range, but AI's temperature range is probably bigger. But yeah. by embedding AI within an organic body, there's a, an immediate alignment around let's preserve the conditions for life on this planet so that we can survive and cooperate together. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way that your world portrays AI is like, maybe the most intimate in terms of its connection to humans of the worlds that I was looking at. You have this kind of downloading system where the AIs come onto these brain computer interface systems and kind of like live inside of us. But there's also this part of them, which is hosted on an orbital server farm, um, the global AI lab or Gale. Can you Mm -hmm. say a little bit more about like where the AIs actually exist? Like, are they kind of in both of these places or are they purely inside of our bodies as individuals or? 
Yeah, they are in both of these places. It's it's like the the old mystical saying, "As above, so below." Right? The, <laughs> um, the big servers are are out there in space in the model of the International Space Station, and the reason for that is it's it's really important to be promoting cooperation rather than competition when it comes to AI. And I think the International Space Station gives us a good model for how to do that. Like we're it's not physically located in any single nation, and it and so from the beginning that reality and that symbolism of this involves all of us is built in. Um, so it's it's out there floating in space, the servers. And at the same time, it, those those servers communicate with the implants in our brain. And we're very, as you were saying, intimately connected with them. And um, yeah, it would really impact everything that we do. So what's to keep one of these systems from considering its existence to be purely on on Gale in orbit around Earth? rather than having this important vested stake in like a physical meat body, you know? Mm, yeah. I think they get something from it. I think they enjoy the new kinds of information mm. that you can get from the physical sensory experience, right? Humans enjoy that. And I, I don't see any reason why another form of intelligence would not enjoy that as well. Yeah, That makes me think of Anne Leckie. Have you heard her work? No. There's this book called Ancillary Justice, where like the main character who's narrating is a ship. And the ship is like distributed among people that work on the ship. It's like this really strange oh. portrayal of awareness and intelligence. But yeah, it kind of like uses oh. the humans it's collaborating with or has taken over in some way, <laughs> depending how you look at it, as like sensory wow. organs. Yeah. Really interesting. That sounds really good. But I mean, there's obviously sort of a dark angle there. You know, like you can think of, you get towards this kind of matrix vision where they're using our bodies as like blind feelers because they want to sense with us. You know, like how do you, how do you keep them mm. interested in our, awareness as well as our capabilities mm. yeah i'm not saying that there's not going to be dark parts of the world still <laughs> i think there <laughs> definitely will there's going to be heartbreak and illness and your toilet's going to clog right before you go to bed and <laughs> like all all the bad stuff is still going to happen um and and that includes like having really significant challenges around the ethics and the interests of ai i think the deal is to and like our task right now is to set up the conditions such that we can work through that in the best way that we can. And mm -hmm. we don't have to get an A plus, but we need to, we need to pass. Yeah. We need to pass this test. <laughs> we need to get a passing grade on climate change and we need to get a passing grade on safe AI. Yeah. You can't take that year over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once we pass that border. Um, so in the end of the day, like I think I feel like that's something that could be negotiated, right? Like yeah. are we are we willing to give up? certain things like our specialness as a species are we willing mm -hmm. to give up you know like deeply cherished ideas about free will and autonomy um in exchange for something different and and better about interrelationship and about cooperation and about mutual aid right so i think the idea that that governs the different kinds of innovations that are in our world are there to enable those conditions where we we work together in a reasonably fair, good enough way. The biggest challenges in every aspect of this world are not technical, they're human. They're problems of cooperation and collaboration and implementation, not, yeah. not problems of like, how do we actually technically wire this? Yeah, I love how you bring those those expertises in so thoughtfully to try to address those problems. It's really cool to see and think about. It. 
This world portrays a uniquely intimate relationship between humans, other animals, AI systems, and the environment. I was curious to hear what inspirations the team took from popular stories about human-animal relationships, and how Key and Micah's backgrounds in activism shaped their own perspectives on the future. I'm always curious to compare some of the narratives in these worlds with like popular depictions of related issues. The animal thing in particular is something, you know, people have been dreaming about communicating with animals for millennia. <laughs> Were there any like examples in culture of animal communication models that were with you when you were working on this? I think I mean there's 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 a couple different ways I could try to think about answering that question. Um I don't know, is there is there something that you're thinking about when you ask that question? I almost feel like you have thought about this so much with your dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the cultural thing I go to is like Dr. Doolittle, I guess. You know, I love those books and like just the idea of directly talking. But those those are so anthrop- anthropomorphizing in a way. Hmm. You know, I was interested hearing like when you talk about talking with mushrooms, just thinking about like what that would mean or what mushrooms could have to say. And I guess I'm curious what other models of communication you might have come across that inspired some of these ideas. I don't know. I read, yeah, I don't always know where my ideas come from. (laughs) Um, And so I wish I had a a better answer. I think one book that has really influenced me in terms of the thinking about animal relationships is The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. This is a sci-fi book I love to recommend because it really transcends the genre of sci-fi to just yeah. break out into like a really good novel. And it's slow to get started, but they, you know, a, a group of humans ends up on a, on a distant planet. They've heard the songs, music transmitted over the airwaves. And first they um, make their home among this one species that's really ge- gentle and vegetarian and and kind. And they start to learn their language and everything. And then there's a reveal in which there's a there's another whole species on the planet that they didn't know about who actually is farming the species that they've made their yeah. um their bond with um and is really cruel uh like not just farming but kind of uh torturing and so that kind of mental shift where you you know you're off off planet you're totally out of our ethical coordinates in a whole new set of ethical coordinates in the first set of beings that you encounter you're inclined to see as ethical beings Mm -hmm. and then you find out within the system of this planet these are the ones who don't count and these are the ones who can be killed and eaten and tortured at will and no one thinks no one of the powerful quote-unquote civilized group thinks that that's a problem at all yeah and i think that that book fundamentally shifted the way you know it helps defamiliarize the way that we see the relationships between humans and non-human animals on on this planet um, and you you can't you can't come back to Earth after having read that book yeah. without yeah. really shifting how you think about our relationship with animals. Yeah, I read that book with my book club a while ago. Yeah, I'm super glad people are still reading that book. It's not new. Yeah, yeah. Well, one concept in your world that's related to this whole like communicating aspect um, is other pov. It's this kind of utility function that's built into a lot of brain-computer interfaces, and it's kind of like an empathy button. Like You can turn it on, and you basically feel some sense of what somebody else is feeling. just facilitates that instant empathy. I'm also curious whether this had any kind of inspirations in um, popular media, or are there any other inspirations there? 
I don't want to say that I'm original. I, I must have read it somewhere, um, <laughs> but I, I can't think of a direct antecedent at the minute. Um, in a way, um, I think of it as other POV, like other point of view. Mm-hmm. Like fiction is the original. Yeah, that's true. Device and the, the original um, empathy button and, and way of coming to inhabit someone else's point of view. And it's, it's true. Like, right, we, we sometimes need a translator, even for the people that are the closest to us. Um, and some things are, are, wouldn't be that hard to convey. I think, like, we know for a fact that a lot of a uh, good substantial amount of what counts as emotion is certain kinds of physiological responses that are then interpreted in a certain way, right? So anxiety is like heart rate. And so if you can control your heart rate, you can actually really control the anxiety. And and so it wouldn't be hard to to measure those things and convey those things to someone else as a first cue to getting a sense of of how they're responding differently or how they're responding maybe in a way that you didn't expect. So I think a lot about the case of sexual harassment, for example, mm-hmm. right? So something um, that seems innocuous to one individual or, or flirtatious or fun is really threatening and scary to the other individual. And, and it's a kind of amazing um, that those two realities can coexist without yeah. translating to one another. And so I, I, I think it was a wish fulfillment kind of uh, yeah. thing that I imagined into the world, which was what if there was just a little bit more of a channel or a little bit more assistance in communicating those things that can sometimes be really hard to verbalize or say out loud. But it's a innovation that would make a profound difference in, in how humans relate to each other. Yeah. With all kinds of privacy problems as well. Yeah, that's, that's where my mind was going next. My black hat was coming on. I mean, yeah. there's there's this interesting thread about communication, which is kind of like consent and communication. Like, I could imagine mm-hmm. both ways. I could imagine these tools maybe being used to, in a sense, read someone's mind a little bit, like get some insight into what they're thinking without them wanting you to. Or on the other mm-hmm. side, like making somebody feel something that they don't want to feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, if we're imagining a world in which data sovereignty is a stronger concept or data mm-hmm. ownership, um, then I think that, that you, there would have to be some consent, right? Like right now, um, the way that we use find my friend or something like that, right? You like can control yeah, yeah. who can see the location of, of where you are, where your phone is. I imagine it might be something similar with with other point of view. Like I consent to be in a relationship where you can see certain kinds of data about my my internal state because I want to communicate with you or, or um, yeah, have that additional layer of understanding with you. <laughs> your wife wants to communicate their anger to you. Do you accept? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Reject connection. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything to say about how like common cultural narratives about animal intelligence are lacking, like any misconceptions or, or overplayed tropes that you think about? Well, I think there's, there's still too much of a tendency to measure animal intelligences against human intelligence um, and to see, oh, can they use language like we can? Yeah, um, yeah. And how much of, oh, well, they can use this many words, whereas we have, a human child has this many words, versus I think the difference between what you're trying to do with your dog and um, into entering their world and trying to understand a, to the extent that we can how things appear to them, how what's important to them, how do they think or, or perceive. Um, I think that's the really 
challenging thing to do. And, and so it's not done as often as the move yeah. to compare the unknown to the known and instead of taking what's known and comparing it to the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed this a lot with my dogs. Again, like I'll be walking my dog and see a dog like some hundreds of yards away. And I'm like, oh, my dogs are so silly. Like they have no idea that dog is there, but I can see it. Like they're so bad at sensing things. And then I realized it's because we clear cut acres of forest <laughs> and put in pavement so that we can use our eyes, which is our like superpower. And if we mm-hmm. were in, in a natural forest, you know, I'd have no idea what was like 10 feet away from me, but they could smell what had been there like hours before. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting to think about how like the, the very built environment and the way that we operate, like really prioritizes our abilities so deeply. Yeah. And, and then that is completely invisible to us. Um, yeah. That we've sort of given ourselves so many huge legs up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting example. Yeah. You know, as you mentioned in the title of this world, you have this focus on the people and, and creative people and their ability to shape things. Um, I'm curious about, again, your, your experience personally with activism and whether there are any kind of real world examples of activist efforts that inspired some of your storytelling. Yeah. Well, there's, I, um, I do have a, a long, background in various activist worlds, um, starting with nonviolent direct action in Palestine, various kinds of intentional communities and community organizing active in the early days of Occupy Wall Street. So all of that is in there in some way. I think that, you know, having engaged with different forms of activism, looking at, yeah, you know, I also did a, um, a stint in Uganda looking at economic development work in mm. that country. And so I kind of, I ex- tried to expose myself to all the theories of how do you change the world? Yeah. You change it through structural economic change or micro loans or uh, direct action or meme warfare yeah. or, or community organizing. I've dabbled in a lot of them. And where I am with that question right now is, that as much as we live in an attention economy, what activists now need to do is not just gain attention, but gain power. Mm. And by, ca- by power, I specifically mean not just political power, but capability, um, the capability to do things together. And that is deliberately defined really broadly, um, because I think that that um, leaves the most space for different sorts of people to see themselves making a change, right? So mm-hmm. if your capabilities are technical, then yes, like, please go learn to program AI and like think about creative ways to use it to make our lives better uh, or to work with it to understand what, what AI is, is interested in and understand AI on, on AI's terms and, and transform our understanding of, of AI. Like, do that. That's a, that is a form of power. Um, but there's also political power. And that's the thing that seems really broken in our world. Political, political processes seem broadly broken, multilateral political processes especially Mm. are broken, but also at the national level. And by broken, I mean they're not working adequately for the majority of people. Way too many people don't have the fundamental things of housing and income and food and and like a safe safe foundation to to reach their, their potential or maybe not even their full potential, but like some of their potential. So... I, there isn't one specific activist moment that I would point to as as influencing the world, but there is a faith that the most important innovations do come from 
outside groups, from small mm-hmm. groups, even from individuals. It comes from people who are willing and able to uh, say the emperor has no clothes. And that's the that's the direction the world is oriented towards is, is what are those, where are those people? It wants to speak to those people. Where are you and what are you doing and what do you think about AI? And can you th- help us think about AI better? Can you help us imagine better things to do with AI? The process of world building has great potential to make a positive future feel more attainable. This can be incredibly powerful, whether you're a creative person looking to produce rich works of fiction, or have a more technical focus and are looking to reach policymakers or the public. I asked Key what kind of impact they hoped their work would have on the world. I just want to hear a little bit about what parts of your world you hope impact the broader world and how. I would love for the world to help bring about a paradigm shift through a conversation. So right now, I think in the AI field, the conversation is, how can we use AI? How can we make money from AI? How can we apply these amazing capabilities? And in the cultural world, the conversation is more like, what does it mean? Who's going to benefit? Is it sentient? Mm. I would love to combine those two conversations into a question that's closer to, how can we meaningfully use AI to shift the paradigms, to solve the, the challenges that seem insoluble? of climate and inequality and political factionalization. So I would love to see depictions of what it would really be like to graft AI onto the human organism. Yeah. And to start to wonder about the effects and the ethics of that. I did recently watch the movie After Yang. Um have you heard of it? No, I have not. It's a uh, it's pretty good. It's in this world there's like the these technical beings in human bodies called technos and one family has bought one a chinese one to mentor to be an older brother for their chinese adopted daughter but at one point in the film the the little girl is talking about what does it mean to be adopted and is she does she really belong to her parents are her parents really her parents and he takes her to an apple orchard and he points to a graft of one kind of apple tree mm-hmm. onto another kind of apple tree and he's like, look, it's it's different, but it still belongs to this apple tree. <laughs> but at the same time, it's also different. And I think this is one of the hardest things for humans to hang on to, which yeah. is this sense of being different and related, the sense of being different and equal at the same time. Um, and so I think that art and and projects that help us to be able to hold those two things together is really powerful. Yeah. You explicitly mention in your story, like the humanities as an important source of input as the world progresses. Are there other kinds of perspectives that that you'd really want to see more of in stories about our future? I mean, all the perspectives. <laughs> I think we're we're we have too few. I mean, in in one sense, we have too many perspectives because the whole internet is is like seething with <laughs> yeah. with voices, and we can't we can't organize or comprehend any of it. Um, and on the other hand, it seems to be the same kinds of narratives that are surfaced again and again. And I think in particular, when it comes to AI, um, we the same apocalyptic scenarios are raised again and again. And that's, I think, particularly potentially problematic when it comes to the large language models that are trained on yeah. 
existing discourse, right? Like it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> where the stories that we tell about AI are apocalyptic. Yeah. We train our, our AI on the apocalyptic narratives about Jinx. themselves. The AI <laughs> is faced with the decision about what to do and it chooses the most likely scenario as the apocalyptic <laughs> scenario. Um, so I think we have a real responsibility to be more imaginative um, in terms of, yeah, like let's, let's be smart. Let's, let's do our pre-mortem. Um, but let's also have, have the faith and the courage to imagine different kinds of stories and to tell them. Yeah. And are there any kinds of expertise that you'd be most interested in having kind of contribute to these conversations? I mean, part of me wants to say, yeah, let's bring the philosophers on board. Let's bring the, the novel writers and the artists and the activists, um, those people who haven't been a real part of driving the direction that AI yeah. and technology is going. And another part of me thinks, well, maybe the question about expertise is a little bit loaded or tilted mm -hmm. in the wrong direction. And, and I want to say, what if we got together sortition bodies? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what if we drew a panel of uh, people from all over the world and we educated them about AI and the risks and the possibilities and the scenarios? And we had a truly democratic lottery based conversation about where our priorities are um, and what kinds of safeguards we want to have and, and what, what our goals are. Yeah. So after reading through your world and, and the comic and experiencing all of it, what do you hope that people stay thinking about long after they've encountered your stories? I think the best art leaves us with the sense that another world is possible, mm. um, that things don't have to be the way that they are, that they could be a different and, and better way. Um, so I think I would, more than an answer or an idea, I would want the world to leave people with the question, how can AI meaningfully shift some of the paradigms that we've taken for granted? And to be open to the unknown, be open to the surprises and not just fall into the pattern of, oh, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be the same rich white guys who benefit from this. Mm -hmm. and it's going to be the same cycle all over again. No, there might be, you know, a lot, lot of, certainly a lot of factors um, tilt in that direction. But what if it wasn't? What yeah. if it were something else? Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat about your creation with us. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions and really taking the time to learn the world and engage with it. It was a lot of fun. Our guest today was Key Rainer Bornfree. You can explore more of Key's work at their website, keybornfree.com. That's C-H-I bornfree.com. If you'd like to check out Micah's book, The End of Protest, A New Playbook for Revolution, or see the online school for activists that he has co-founded, you can visit his website, micahmwhite.com. That's M-I-C-A-H-M-White.com. And for more of JR's comics and illustrations, you can check out jrcomicart.com. If this podcast has got you thinking about the future, you can find out more about this world and explore the ideas contained in the other worlds at www.worldbuild.ai. We want to hear your thoughts. Are these worlds you'd want to live in? If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to help more people discover and discuss these ideas, you can give us a rating or leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. We read all the comments and appreciate every rating. This podcast is produced and edited by Worldview Studio and the Future of Life Institute. 
FLI is a nonprofit that works to reduce large-scale risks from transformative technologies and promote the development and use of these technologies to benefit all life on Earth. We run educational outreach and grants programs and advocate for better policymaking in the United Nations, U.S. government, and European Union institutions. If you're a storyteller working on films or other creative projects about the future, we can also help you understand the science and storytelling potential of transformative technologies. If you'd like to get in touch with us or any of the teams featured on the podcast to collaborate, you can email worldbuild at futureoflife.org. A reminder, this podcast explores the ideas created as part of FLI's worldbuilding contest, and our hope is that this series sparks discussion about the kinds of futures we all want. The ideas we discuss here are not to be taken as FLI positions. You can find more about our work at www.futureoflife.org or subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on all our projects. Thanks for listening to Imagine a World. Stay tuned to explore more positive futures. Mm-hmm.